So Amy, I know the time machine hasn't been invented yet, but if it were, would you give one a whirl? Oh, I've thought about this quite a bit in my life. And the answer I think is yes. How cool would it be to get to go back in time to all these places that we read about and actually experience it? Ideally, I would like to have the option to safely return to present day (laughs) if possible. But yeah, I'd be down for some sort of outlander type scenario. Yeah, a kilt or a corset or something like that. The costumes are just whirling through my head. Yeah. Um, Or maybe we could even meet up with a few of the authors we feature on Lost Ladies of Lit. So hey, everybody, welcome back to another one of our mini podcasts. I'm Kim Askew. And I'm Amy Helms. Okay, so Kim, one of the next best things to having an actual time machine is getting to travel somewhere that feels like it's from another place in time. And one of those places for me is Mackinac Island in Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Oh yeah, I know you love that place, and I can't wait to hear all about it from you in today's episode. So Mackinac Island, we should point out, is one of the primary settings of last week's featured novel, Anne. It's this amazing novel by Constance Fenimore Wilson. Yeah, and tucked away on a wooded hillside on Mackinac Island is this shrine of sorts that's dedicated to Wilson. It's a bronze plaque called Anne's Tablet that commemorates the novel and the beloved heroine, Anne. There's a fort on Mackinac Island, one that's also featured in the novel, and you have to take a hike from this fort up to a scenic vista to find it. It's kind of hidden out of the way a little bit, but it's in the exact sort of location where I envision Anne and her childhood sweetheart, Brast, used to have their talks in the novel, if you remember that, Kim. Oh, that is so sweet. I can picture it. And I've actually seen a photo of the plaque online. It it features a sculpture of Anne hanging the Christmas wreath from the opening passage of the book. Wilson really did such a great job of describing the natural beauty of the island. And so it just feels like the perfect tribute. I think it was her nephew that raised the funds to have this plaque put up. But I'm glad somebody wanted to remember her because she's really worth remembering, I think. Yeah, if you haven't listened to that episode on her, I would go back and listen to it. She, in addition to being an amazing writer that time has forgotten a bit, she also had a really interesting life, which we get into during the podcast. So Amy, I have not yet visited Mackinac Island, though I really want to. And I know you love it. So could you tell us a little bit more about it? Well, I've only been once. It's perched right up at the top of the Great Lakes on the Straits of Mackinac, which is where Lake Michigan and Lake Huron connect. And today it's obviously a tourist destination, but when you visit it, you feel like you're entering this magical, enchanted place that's separated from everything. You know, this sort of isolated fantasy world kind of thing. So there are no cars on the island, and that's part of the reason that it's so enchanting, I think. Motorized transportation of any kind is not allowed, although I do think there might be golf carts that are only allowed on the golf course. And of course, like motorized wheelchairs, that's fine. Mm -hmm. But you get there by ferry, and then you're either going to be walking, bicycling, or riding in horse-drawn carriage to explore the island. So cool. I would definitely be exploring the island via horse-drawn carriage for sure. So once I'm there and in my horse-drawn carriage, where am I going? What is there to do on the island? 
So when you first arrive and you're at the docks, very nearby is the main street, which is historic architecture, but, you know, really a lot of like fudge and saltwater taffy kind of shops, you know, it's, it's the place where the tourists are. But once you venture a few blocks out from there, it becomes so pastoral. There's all these Victorian homes with clappered siding dotting the whole island. And in the spring and summer, the whole place is in full bloom with flowers. There's lily of the valley, bluebells, creeping myrtle. It's like walking around in a painting or a picture postcard. It's so adorable. And then I'm also kind of intrigued about what the place might be like in the wintertime, because after the tourists leave, the people that live on the island are pretty much shut off from the rest of the world. They're literally snowed in and they really can't get supplies except maybe by plane. So they kind of have to hunker down until spring in the next tourist season. It's very much as Wilson describes it, the winter there. It could be really magical or it could be the shining. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, that's where my mind goes. Um, that sounds really beautiful, though. We learned from our guests last week, Anne Boyd Rue, that Constance Finnemore Wilson had a strong interest in botany. So no wonder she loved Mackinac and was able to describe it so beautifully. She was really into all the, the flora. It's definitely a nature lover's paradise. But actually, the biggest structure on the island, which you can see in all its glory when you're approaching by ferry, is the Grand Hotel. It first opened in 1887, which is a few decades past the time period that we read about in Wilson's novel. But again, it's a place that is just a complete throwback to another era. So it's a national historic landmark, and it feels incredibly old school but in the best way possible. You eat dinner in this magnificent dining room with formerly formally dressed waiters with white towels over their arms, and the Grand Hotel Orchestra is playing in the background. They totally pull out all the stops for the dinner service. It's an experience you can't miss if you happen to visit. It kind of sounds almost like being on board the Titanic only yes. on land. Exactly, exactly. It does that's, feel that way. That sounds so cool. Okay, so a few weeks ago, I was saying that we needed to go to Concord, Massachusetts together, but now I'm also thinking we have to go here too. So let's put this <laughs> on the list also. Yes. Okay, that's going on the bucket list, the travel <laughs> bucket list. I know you would definitely find the whole thing exhilarating, I promise you. And the grandness of the Grand Hotel that I was trying to explain is actually captured really well in the 1980 movie Somewhere in Time starring Jane Seymour and Christopher Reeve, who play these star-crossed lovers from two different centuries. They actually filmed the movie at the hotel. Yeah, whenever I hear anything about Mackinac, for better or worse, I immediately think of Somewhere in Time. I know, it's been a pretty long time since I'd seen the movie, but I just always remembered it being so swoon-worthy, you know, from the Mackinac scenery, which is breathtaking, to Christopher Reeve's breathtaking blue eyes. <laughs> and then there's all that sweeping Rachmaninoff music. I love it. I love that theme song, Rhapsody on a Theme from Paganini. I can hear that in my head right now. I remember watching it for the first time on cable TV when I was in junior high. I was homesick with the flu. And somehow, I think because I was sick while I was watching it, it's really stuck with me. And I've never forgotten it because of that. I have this memory of just gasping all over the place the first time I saw it. I was just like, oh my God, it's so dreamy. 
that said, you know, we both watched this when we were young and impressionable and probably hormonal. So was (laughs) it really all that good? Does it still hold up today? Or is it just super cheesy and we are completely embarrassing ourselves right now? Maybe we were just suckers for those Christopher Revis. I don't know. Right. So basically, Amy and I decided to put ourselves to the test. And while we were preparing for the podcast, we actually embarked on the Somewhere in Time Challenge. Our first ever movie challenge. So Kim and I both agreed that we'd watch the movie again and decide what we really think of it some decades after first falling in love with it. Is it swoon-worthy or cringe-worthy? That's the question we're facing today. Well, can it be both? (laughs) (laughs) Maybe, maybe. (laughs) To me, I mean, Christopher Reeve is very swoon-worthy. It was one of his first movies. He had done Superman, the first Superman, and then this movie. But there are a lot of cheese-worthy moments in the movie, I feel like, still. It had a feel to me, a very TV movie of the week, even though it was a feature film. I have more to say, but maybe you should. All you right. should jump in. I'm, I'll take that. And then I will respond with my verdict, which is glorious. <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> I, there were a few moments where I laughed. I mean, <laughs> the moment where he first saw her portrait in the Hall of History. <laughs> <Yes>. Okay. <laughs> That one was a bit over the top. There were a few more moments. Like that was that. not an Oscar win However, moment. we got to just talk about the fact that Jane Seymour is absolutely exquisite. Okay, she is, but I had not remembered, even though I thought I thought that I remembered almost everything about the movie, because like I said, you know, it made a, an imprint on me. But really almost half the movie is Christopher Reeve's character trying to get back to her. And he has all these crazy, pretty silly ways of trying to get back to her before he actually sees her. So on the one hand, it is a big buildup and she does live up to that with her beauty, but it is a really long time before they actually have their meet cute. However, Christopher Reeve, can we just say, is probably the most beautiful man of the 1980s. Yes. I will answer that for you. Yes. He plays the role very earnestly Mm -hmm. at times, which I I loved, but he also did bring a subtle sense of humor. I think he he didn't take himself too seriously. I think you're right. It had a little bit of a feel of a comedy and not in a bad way in that in his acting, in his style, the way he was responding to things. Exactly. He has so much charisma that even though I will say it was a bit cheesy, he could definitely pull it off. And then, of course, we have Christopher Plummer, who you can never say a bad word about that man. He plays the villain. Yeah, I thought it was funny seeing him, Captain Von Trapp from The Sound of Music, as this mysterious, vaguely evil character. (laughs) (laughs) I know you said TV movie. I kept getting a Hallmark movie vibe from it. Oh, yeah, definitely. I think people love Hallmark movies. It it brought the romance. It brought it all. Oh, I was, I was into it. I was, I was definitely into it, but it is not Criterion Collection by any (laughs) means. But the the Rachmaninoff (laughs) elevates it. Yes, for sure. It does. It definitely was worth watching. It's a movie that I think I can always go back. If I catch it on TV, I will stop and I will watch it. It's one of those movies. Costumes. It's got them. Really mm-hmm. gorgeous music. It's got them. Two mm-hmm. gorgeous leading actors. It's got them. Christopher Plummer. It's got him. And a beautiful, beautiful set on this yes. island. 
and going back to the Grand Hotel in its glory days. All right, so we'll give it a qualified swoonworthy, I think. Yeah, I'll okay. give it. I'll give it a thumbs up. Swoonworthy with a dotting of cringes throughout, campy yes. cringes. Yeah. Yes, and cheesy is not necessarily a bad thing. No, not at all. Okay, so we settled it. That was fun, though. I enjoyed watching it again, and I was kind of nervous watching it because I didn't want my memory of loving it so much to be changed, and it didn't. I still love it. Good. I hope my comments didn't negatively impact your feelings for the movie. Okay, good. Never. You you know, you are are 100% loyal. Like Richard's love for Elise, my love for this movie will never die. Timeless. Timeless. Yes. So, okay, wait, was Somewhere in Time also based off of a book? Yes, there was a book called Bid Time Return by Richard Matheson. And I actually did check it out at the library once, but I couldn't finish it because it just didn't come anywhere near the magic of the movie. The story is not set in Mackinac. It's set at the Hotel Coronado. So I actually got the book out after I had visited Hotel Coronado Mm -hmm. in San Diego because I was curious about the hotel. But it didn't do anything for me. However, since I know, Kim, that you have been to Virginia City, Nevada, and I have also, I wonder if you've ever been to the Opera House there, because there is a photo of a woman hanging at the old Opera House. It's a portrait of a woman named Maud Adams, who was a Broadway stage actress. She was actually the very first person to play Peter Pan in America. This photo of Maud Adams actually inspired Matheson to write his book. So she's actually the inspiration for Jane Seymour's character in the movie. Ooh. Yeah, I have been to that opera house in Virginia City. I don't remember seeing that photo. I wish I had known. I would have looked for it when I was there. Um, But I do know that Mark Twain, Lily Langtry, and Errol Flynn have all been on stage there. Yeah, it was like a place where the big names in the country would hit up when they were touring through. And so that brings us back to Adams, who was a huge actress in her day. And she was only eight years old when she appeared in a play at that Virginia City Opera House. And then she went on to make her Broadway debut at age 16. And that also makes her a great segue for our next Lost Lady of Lit. In next week's episode, we'll be chatting about Natalia Crane, a girl poet phenom whose work was first published at the tender age of 11. Yeah, this is an interesting one. And I mean, my daughter's going to be 11 in two more months. So I kind of know that age of little girl, and I'm very interested to hear more about her. So for more information on this episode, as well as further reading material, check out our website, lostladiesoflit.com. And if you love this episode, please leave us a review. It really helps new listeners find us. Our theme song was written and performed by Jenny Malone, and our logo was designed by Harriet Grant. Lost Ladies of Lit is produced by Kim Askew and Amy Holmes. 